Hey folks, I'm here with uh, Ian Kelly. I say I'm here, he's on the other end of an internet um, in that they're Australia. So Ian Kelly, aka Marv, is uh, currently a freelance journalist working with Street Machine Australia and Mighty Car Mods, amongst other things. Um, previously been an editor of Motor Magazine um, and he's the owner of a very interesting Instagram account which you should check out, which is aka Marv, where he shares interesting stories from various motorsports and other bits and pieces um uh welcome welcome ian how are you doing well thank you very much for having me i'm i'm lovely it's friday night down here and i've got a uh, i've got a couple of cold cold snacks on the lounge next to me so it's life isn't too bad uh, okay could, could be a could be a lot worse right i'm gonna launch straight into our first question which is um as ever why cars why why do you like cars why do you spend your time with them it's all my dad's fault I'll, I'll completely throw him under the bus here. My dad's in a cars. His brother's in a cars. All my uncles are in a cars. My cousins are in a cars. All my friends are in a cars. There was no hope for me. Um, I in in Australia, I I was I'm I was born in the eighties, and I remember growing up in the era of plastic bumpers, and I remember seeing, uh, I remember seeing this this thing parked in the little regional town where I grew up. Um, it was parked outside the shopping centre and it had chrome and it had rocket fins and it looked like it was from outer space and I later identified it as a 1957 Chev. And I think that was really the moment that I was like, yeah, these things are, they're intoxicating. There's something about them. This is this is the thing for me now. Uh, yeah. Fantastic. So what was your, what was your first car? What does a what does a young Ian end up driving? So, I'll give you a little bit of background. as As a kid, like I got Dad used to bring home car magazines, and I actually loved Jags as a kid. I had a, I had like my heart pounded for C types and D types and Mark Twos. I, I was never really into E types for some reason, but I just. Like a Mark II 3.8 was the car that I wanted. My dad was into like classic Italian cars. So like Fiat 124 Coupes and Alpha 1750 GTVs and things of that sort of nature. So when it came time for me to get my first car, I went out and bought a 1975 Holden Monaro four-door muscle car. <laughs> right <laughs> completely my 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 automotive life i i spend i've spent nearly 20 years writing about other people's car journeys and stuff like that my own car journey is the most shambolic misstep filled um adventure that any no one could write the the stupid <laughs> things that have happened um but yes yeah, so I, I it was bright orange and um it was bright orange and it had a black bonnet and, and the Holden Monaros in Australia, are a bit, they're about the size of a Chevelle, so like mid-size American car, similar sort of underpinnings, uh, 4.2 litre Holden V8, four-speed manual, black interior. Like as a 17-year-old, it was just, well, to coin the phrase from Mad Max, it was the duck's guts. <laughs> uh, sounds like a car that could get you uh, into just about enough trouble uh, as a 17-year-old. Well, the good thing was anyone, uh, so the 4.2 litre V8 in Australia is known as the thong slapper, the 253. Um, and they make a lot of noise, but they've got about 4.6 horsepower on a good day. <laughs> and um, and it, was, it was just the perfect car 
for a 17 year old because it, it had all the look but nothing to back it up that's 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 kind of what you want i mean at that age you that's exactly correct you, you just want to be making a, a reasonable amount of noise looking cool but not enough uh, danger to actually um get yourself into too much trouble i feel yeah, so it, 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 Australia's a really weird kind of car culture, particularly 20 years ago. Uh, so I got my license in 2000. That was when this was all sort of going down. Uh, and I had a friend who had a Lancia Beta Coupe, which was a very rare car in Australia. Um, and we had, so that was a 1800cc front wheel drive twin cam, actually quite a nice car. And then we had another friend who had a 1971 Ford Falcon, the local sort of, uh, it was a GT Falcon lookalike. Now, GT Falcons in Australia in the early 70s were powered by 351 cubic inch Cleveland engines as found in Dittomazo Panteras and those sorts of things. Nice. So he was able at that time, they're, they're worth, like the factory race models these days are worth a million dollars plus, but the... You could, in that time, you could go out and buy one of these things that had stove-hot V8s for cents in the dollar. And so we had this really kind of eclectic mix of cars in our group. We had a, one friend had a Nissan, uh, Nissan Pulsar, which I think is a Sunny in the UK. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah, so we'd, we'd go out driving together and we'd find twisty roads and go fanging down twisty roads and have a mad time. But... Um, some of us had more horsepower than they had brakes and handling, shall I say. And I'll never forget seeing uh, my mate who had this Ford Falcon. He came, we pulled over at a McDonald's to sort of reconvene and chat about the fun run that we just had. And he was at the back of the pack. And he came in a few minutes after everyone else and he was white. And he had managed to have a high-speed spin around oncoming traffic and managed to somehow the universe looked after him and he spun into someone's driveway it was a long kind of rural driveway and he didn't hit anything and everyone kind of got away with it and he sold that car very soon afterwards because he had scared himself that bad yeah i i think um that there's a uh a lesson there for everyone <laughs> to fight to to know to know your limits and uh because otherwise you're, you're you can end up falling out of love with the car that scares you too much um i've had had one or one or two um near misses and uh those cars disappear not long after that i think as we get older particularly in australia i don't know if it's the kind of macho australian sort of thing but a lot of people like a small element of kill death it's a bit like the crazy hot scale some people like their partners to be a little bit crazy you don't want something that's get you know you're going to it's going to terrify you, but you want something with an edge to it. And uh, I see a lot of people today building ridiculous horsepower cars and um, they generally drive them around. Like knowing you've got the really big stick is almost enough for them. They don't actually need to take it to the track and lay down a pass or, or they don't need to go out there on the road and burn the tires for 500 meters or whatever. They just, just knowing is enough for them. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's knowing you got the uh, the 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 biggest dog in that fight, but never actually letting it do anything because, as you say, it's the knowing. It's a yeah, an interesting thing. I, I find that strange. Like nowadays, um, when I was growing up, kind of three hundred brake horsepower was a lot, and like race cars had 
that like formula one cars yeah they were running sort of eight nine hundred um like formula one type cars but like the majority of, of stuff you'd see racing was like 300 odd brake horsepower and, and light and nowadays like people's shopping cars are that it's insane and people's race cars are uh, a sort of 900 thousand 1500 brake horsepower um it just seems uh it seems like the numbers have got ridiculous and, and i'm i'm yeah, I don't know. Don't know where we're at with that. It doesn't. It, it stopped making sense to me about three years ago. Um, I stopped. I, I stopped trying to like rationalize it um, a few years ago. Like, I really find it interesting that we we truly live in a golden age of horsepower because not only do cars make more peak horsepower, but they make more power everywhere. And EFI means that they they hot start and they cold start and there's like no nobody knows what a flat spot is anymore in a power curve all these amazing sort of um advances have come and we are just we're drowning in power um and like i was talking to someone the other day like a thousand horsepower you can build a thousand horsepower lsv8 in australia with off-the-shelf parts in two days and if you really want to get spicy you can order an engine from proline in america they will sell you a complete package for 175,000 american it's 4,500 horsepower Jeez. steve steve morris engines builds the engines for the world's fastest streetcar which is tom bailey's six seconds to camaro it's won a couple of drag weeks it's run in the mid five seconds over the quarter mile um, so his SMX engines, I believe, make about five, five and a half thousand horsepower. Um, so, w- like, if you ever want for horsepower today, you're just not looking in the right place. You can find it. Um, but then I think a, a lot of people also are getting an idea. We're finally getting a grasp on blending it with style and handling people aren't scared to say cut their cars up and add crazy cantilever suspension and and irs in muscle cars is a big thing now i see roadster shops selling heaps of irs for for old cars yeah that's like the pro touring stuff when that came about it was like a sudden realization that you might have this gigantic barge with eight nine hundred whatever horsepower but being able to go around corners is also kind of fun as well um and i think it's all sort of come together I think people want to use their stuff too. It's particularly like that in Australia. The, like when I was first writing for car magazines twenty odd years ago, there was a there was a clear delineation between race cars and show cars. And now what we have is basically super finely detailed street cars that make race car horsepower and could, could do race car lap times that are detailed and polished enough to be show cars and yeah. um yeah. it's so that it, like a lot of people in australia the, there's so much going on land prices down here are so ridiculous we're all mortgaged to the hilt so you can't necessarily have a tow car a trailer a race car and then a nice sunday cruiser if you do have that you're very wealthy so people have to build all that stuff in a one and, and like down here i see it, it's i see it quite a lot in the uk too Cars and coffee events, car, events where you can turn up, be there for a short while, and then leave and go about your day or night, are 
super popular. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That that it's a, the show the show and go kind of thing, like you, usable uh, usable show cars is is a um, is a big thing. I think that there's less and less of that trailering of show cars as there were like back in the late 90s early 2000s i think there was a a, a lot of trailering uh, whereas nowadays as you say like the the events that people go to tend to be um stuff you have to drive to you can't turn up at a cars and coffee type event with a car on a trailer you look like an idiot yeah and i think it's also learned behavior i think in the late 90s everyone was still following along from how the hot rod guys and the the um, street machine, for want of a better term, guys would do it. They would trail all their cars to shows, um, and you did stuff where you jacked cars up and put displays underneath them. Uh, that then, as people kind of found, as we matured as people, like as, as certainly my generation, I'm I'm thirty seven now, and people sort of. Around 2005, 2006, I remember seeing that people saying, well, hang on, why am I building these big displays at shows? I want to use my car. I want to actually get out there and, and like, my family needs to enjoy this as well. I'm spending a lot of money on it and spending a lot of time on it. So let's just use it how I want to use it. Let's not conform to the, you know, expectations. Yeah, for sure. One of the other things, actually, that popped into my brain while we were talking about the extreme horsepower stuff was um a thing i learned the other week that uh christian konigsegg who owns konigsegg unsurprisingly um his fun summer car that he takes to work is a mazda mx5 um and it's as a reminder to himself that cars should be fun to drive uh, and, and i think that's a thing that's come about actually people don't need to chase this horsepower, as you say, you can buy a thousand brake horsepower engine off the shelf now. Um, people are starting to learn that um, the uh, the fun in driving is there, and I think these cars and coffee type events encourage that because you've got the journey to and from is also part of that experience. Um, I think yeah. that, that's definitely a change. And I think that people are remembering that variety is the spice of life. Um, yeah, like Instagram is a. I love Instagram so much more than Facebook because you get, if you search, if you can think of a term to search for, you can find Himalayan Wolseley Owners Association and see what those guys are doing with their cars, like whatever it may be. Um, and it means that, like, so E30 BMWs are like my crack cocaine. I've owned a stack of them. I love them for some reason. I think it like small, light, rear-wheel drive, engaging cars. It just that just must be my type. Um, yeah. But but like I was talking to my wife a little while ago, and I said sort of like we were talking about a friend of mine who has a lot of cars, and she said, "No, please never do that." And I said, "No, I don't. I don't think I would. I would ever want to do that. I want to have a really well-rounded garage." And I think that's a very common thing today. We're, we're, a lot of us are time poor these days and we're getting bombarded with information and, and we go to events like Cars and Coffee where you'll probably see some rare Japanese car parked next to a rare Italian car parked next to a cool everyman's car like an MX-5 or something like that. And it just reminds you that the world is very diverse and humans are, we're complex beings. We've got a lot of moods. And some days you don't want to listen to heavy metal and drive a 4,000 horsepower 
you know, pro street American muscle car. Some days you want to have that fine scalpel sharp handling with 50 horsepower and you, you want the Lotus Elise experience. Um, so yeah, it's like, I think, like I was saying to my wife, like I want a three car garage cause that'll keep me honest, you know? Yeah. I think, yeah, that, 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 that hunt for the perfect three car garage is definitely, um, uh, a thing as well. I think there's, um, uh, there's power in that idea. Uh, I, I suspect that um, uh, you could uh, have a lot of long conversations with people around um, what their perfect three car garage is. Because uh, I've definitely thought it through mates. a few times. It's so hard. It's so hard to work out. One of the things is we change as people. The person I am today is not the person I was when I was 20 years old. So my three car garage changes. I've mm. learnt though. I've kind of nailed down three basic styles that I like. So I own a 1964 Pontiac Bonneville, and that's my big American cruiser. I love 50s and 60s American cars for their excess and their size and their V8, you know, and just they're, they're just ridiculous. They're a caricature, but <laughs> I love them for that. That's fantastic. Um, it's the same reason why I... I you know, I like watching Lethal Weapon movies and I like watching, um, I I actually enjoy watching Expendables movies and stuff like that because they're caricatures. But at the same time, parked next to that, I would love a Hartgear-tuned E3323i. And then nice. I, would keep a, I would keep a third bay that would just be on rotation. I want to own an air-cooled 911. Someday, I'd probably like to own a Supra, a JZA80 Supra or, an, or a Skyline GTR. Both of those are so expensive in Australia now, I doubt I'm ever going to get there. But there's there's a million other cars that could fill that third spot. Um, and it's yeah, about, I like that you know, idea. I like the idea of having a rotating sort of third spot where you've got, you got your sort of dailies and, your, and your, your fun car and then you've got like this third spot that's, kind of whatever's on your mind at the time or just an itch to scratch somewhere along the line i like i talked to um i've got a i've got a mate who's an electrician so electricians in australia earn good money and so he's got the luxury of being in a pretty favorable financial position where he can pick up project cars and um so he's got a he's got a late 70s f100 which is just this kind of rowdy bright yellow american freedom machine it does ridiculous burnouts it's like something straight out of roadkill um much Lovely. shinier much shinier than anything <laughs> on roadkill but um he's got a three thousand dollar e38 740 il bmw uh, which is just super neat it's just slammed on a set of ac schnitzer wheels and that's his kind of comfortable cruiser and he's got a 65 fairlane which we're going to put a stroke of uh, small block Ford V8 into with a six speed manual. Um, so, and then he's talking about getting a, like an Escort or a Cortina and putting a Honda K24 motor in it to have nice. like a, like building like a modern version of like a BDA kind of works rally car, but obviously without spending a million pounds on an original BDA rally car and then ruining it but so he's he's got that you know he's got that kind of like everything's kind of covered there 
is any kind of mood you could have when you walk out to your garage at the start of the day, it doesn't matter what your mood is, there's a car there for you. That's a, that's a, that's yeah that's nice I like that that that's a, I think that's an aim for us all to to come out to our garage and go right I'm in a mood for this today and uh, have the keys and the car all ready for it. Um, let, I a... just want to sort of uh, sorry I just want to touch on your career a bit actually. So I've realised we've we, we've launched into a, a car discussion which I'm um, definitely all in favour of. But um, for people that don't know you, <laughs> which is uh, probably some people here in probably, the uh, probably in the everyone, UK, <laughs> uh, and we, we we actually weirdly have a a split between um, UK and Australian uh, listeners. So um, I should imagine the Australian uh, listeners will uh, will be be aware of you. But um, I, I just wanted to touch on the fact that you are um, or, or or well, you're a journalist and you you write for Street Machine Australia magazine, which is slightly different to Street Machine UK. Um, uh, and sort of how you started and got involved in that. Um, I, I've realised we, we've got, gone deep into uh, to car and garage Aut- discussion. Automotive. Uh, not, not not introduced you. <laughs> oh, it's um, it, it's a it's it's a bit of a funny story. So, um, my growing up, I read a lot of car magazines. Dad would always bring car magazines home, and I thought I wanted to be a mechanic. Or I just I was fascinated with these things. I could not read or watch enough about them and then all of a sudden high school was over and I didn't know what I was going to do I'd I'd realized that I probably wasn't going to cut it as a mechanic professionally Um, I wanted to work on 250 Lussos and and you know American muscle cars and interesting stuff and funnily enough there's not that many jobs going in Australia for those kind of rarefied uh beasts so anyway i i figured that no one can shut me up about cars so i should probably go be a journalist and i did a i did a college a private college course in australia i got shocking year 12 marks because i was too busy faffing around in my uh in my holden monaro to uh to apply myself at school but i was lucky that that um there was a private college and i went to that and as part of that there was a work experience component and i used to read like Street Machine Magazine was my love. There's these things that people, men would go into garages and build these things, these amazing shiny beasts, um, these this outpouring of creative energy, and they seemed like regular guys. So I thought, well, there's hope for me yet. So I'd, I'd, I, part of my course was um, work experience, so I just rang the editor every week and pestered him uh, to come in and do work experience. I, and so I just started doing um, Friday was my work experience day and I would just come in every single Friday and for six months. And then at the end of that six months, I'd kind of ingratiated myself and I'd, I'd had a few sort of jobs helping out. And I did a lot of the crap. I did a lot of the crap jobs. Um, kids, if you're listening and you want to work on on in the media or something like that, you're going to have to do a lot of crap work. It's just... You're going you're gonna to be asked to like help out on photo shoots for long hours with no pay and that sort of stuff. It's all part of it. And I was, I was very lucky that there was a magazine that was about Japanese tuning and, um, and European tuning uh, that was kind of floating at the same time. It was Street Machine's sister magazine. It was a magazine called Speed Magazine. And um, 
I my job interview was we were at the pub on a Friday afternoon and the editor said to me, do you know what an RB26 DE double T is? And I said, yeah, it's a Skyline GTR motor. And they were, they were a rare, rare thing in Australia at the time. And he said, well, congratulations, you're my new staff writer. <laughs> so I said, Good interview. I said, oh, okay, cool. And it's been, yeah, it's uh, 18 years this year that I've been writing about cars. I've, um, I, I did a lot with late model Japanese, high performance European, high performance cars. My dad's background with uh, Fiat's and then Peugeot's uh, sort of helped me with that. Um, so I knew about 205 GTIs. We had a um, we had Peugeot 405s at home, so I knew about like you know Climb Dance. I, I got bought a copy of Climb Dance for a birthday or Christmas when I was a kid, and I wore that VHS out. So I knew all about European tuning and whatnot. Well, I thought I did at the time, and um, yeah, it stood me in good stead. So uh, yeah, it's been. It's been good. I, I actually got into... I met the Mighty Car Mods guys in 2005, 2005-2006 because um, I had a thing for Subaru Liberty RS Turbos, which is an Australian-delivered legacy RS Turbo. Um, and Marty and Ben, who's a mechanical Stig on the show, and Al Turbo Yoda from the Skid Factory, we all... Love our turbo Subarus. We like the Liberties because they're or Legacies because they're a bit more of a sleeper. And um, yeah, I got to know those guys through that, and we've we've had some um, we've had some great times. I was actually last night I saw that there was a um, there was a Facebook memory. We we went to the United States in 2016 and we built a car. We we took a WRX a 2002 WRX or 2003 WRX wagon and we chopped it into a Ute in two days. And then we battled roadkill uh, in San Diego. Ah, uh, yes, I remember that. That uh, that's a, f- a fun couple of episodes of uh, both of the uh, both of the shows. Um, that's 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 awesome stuff. So you also write for Mighty Car Mod. So are you authoring? Because you've written a book for them, and you, you've done we've other done, stuff with them. Yeah, we've done two books. Um, we did a reprint of the original book with more cars in it. And I do most of the blog posts um, and I, I help them out. Like I've, I've produced some episodes for them. We did a HQ police car for a super cheap auto ad um, with an LS1 in it. Um, yeah, I, I kind of like I hang out with the guys quite a lot. Uh, they're good mates of mine. So we, um, yeah, we, we're always chatting and talking and projects kind of come up as we talk and chat. We're like, oh, you know what? This will be really good. We should do this or we should do that and it all kind of boils away and then all of a sudden one day i get a phone call to say hey um hey marv can you go source us a hq and an ls1 <laughs> nice that's, that's that's a good phone call to be getting um so oh, it's you've, great you've it's always doing, fun you've been doing this kind of 18 years or so so has the australian scene changed that much in that time and, and if so sort of how is it evolved to to where we're at now it's it's changed massively i think the ad the advent of everyone having the internet in their pocket has meant that there are cars that aren't as scary to own so a good mate of mine has a maserati by turbo 
And when he bought that car in 2004, like, good luck. You, you have to import everything to Australia for that car, like like my Pontiac. It, it just it becomes such an expensive exercise, whereas now there's a lot of information out there that means you you know that where the you know where the interchange is. Hey, did you know uh, Mercedes pistons actually fit that car? Oh, okay, whatever it may be. Um, we've I mean we've seen like we were talking about before, horsepower's just gone nuts. So people aren't scared also to fit different engines. More people are getting wrecked AMG Mercedes and sticking they're looking at how to stick those engines in old muscle cars or old classic cars. So there's there's a there's a lot more awareness of the world around us in Australia. Yeah, that's uh, that's the thing. I mean, you're you're stuck stuck out there on the other side of the world. It must have been a fairly localized scene uh, um, at one point. But uh, once the world opens up, um, it all comes flooded in, I guess. It's really interesting. So uh, in Australia, we weren't our car scene wasn't exactly like America's. America's was all based around either NASCAR or drag racing. It seems there were small pockets that were interested in like Trans Am racing and circuit racing and stuff like that. England seemed to be quite a bit more rallying and circuit racing oriented, particularly veering sort of towards the pinnacle being single seaters and maybe sports cars. In Australia, we kind of took a middle ground from everyone where um, our main race was the Bathurst 1000. Our main interest was touring car racing there were some guys who were just tried and true drag racers flat out since you know the 50s but most people the bulk of people took a took a touring car kind of stance so our cars our street cars would be more powerful they'd be tuned for racing but then they would also have handling chucked in there with them um fat mini lights with you know good quality Pirelli tires and Coney shocks and Bilstein shocks and stuff like that were common for the domestic V8 guys as they were the guys into minis and European cars. Um, but then as we kind of, as our touring cars racing left production car, it left production cars really by the sort of the late nineties. There's no, production basis to any of the v8 supercars you see today obviously and so the people modifying their cars that's when it kind of all splintered and you have the drift scene started getting really big sort of just as i was getting into magazines that was we were running um covers with drifting which was a, a pretty big thing at the time uh, and that was oh three Oh four was starting to get really big, but then so people were starting to style their street cars after drift cars in Australia back then, and then you also had uh, the the start of the pro touring movement, and then you started getting people styling cars like rally cars and stuff as well. So it all kind of started splintering, and we lost that kind of tie to the touring cars when they went to those V eight supercars. And today, I think a lot of guys who have like classic V eight cars, particularly. They, they are like a, what you would call a radial style drag car from America. So they're like, they're not the big slicks, but 
they take inspiration from like a very powerful American streetcar. Mm. Um, that makes so, sense. Yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting kind of it's splintered when the uh, um, touring cars became less identifiable as road cars. I think that's a sort of a weird knock-on effect on a culture of a decision somebody made somewhere for entirely different reasons. It's um, that's quite interesting. We 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 had a big dust up in the mid nineties. When, when Group A Racing went by the by in 1993 in Australia, um, as I'm, you guys went to the Toka touring car, two-litre style of racing about then, I'm pretty sure. Maybe yep. 92. Um, in Australia, it was 1993. So we had domestic five-litre V8, like rear-wheel drive, Holden Commodores, Ford Falcons. They were like, they were one camp. And then you had... Uh, two-liter super tourers running with them and then they split and there was this big battle of the touring car codes and personally although it did horrible things to motorsport in australia for many years as a kid um i loved it because there was competitive there was like double the amount of racing on any given weekend and it was shoulders out like hardcore close racing the the shame of it was that we had in super touring in Australia, I think you had like nine or ten different brands, which, which is traditionally what we've always had in touring car racing in Australia. There's always been a lot of brands, but then we lost that because touring, the two liter touring cars couldn't survive against the, uh, shall we say, competitive structure of the V8s, and we ended up with this two. We had we had Holden and Ford. And everyone else who doesn't like Holden and Ford, like my old man couldn't give a toss about Commodores or Falcons. Um, but he loved watching Peugeot 405 MI16s and 406s and and even the like Hyundai Elantras and Audi A4s and all those other different interesting cars. He loved watching them go around and, and battle. And um, when two-litre touring car racing in Australia died, there was a there was a whole bunch of people who loved those kind of like late model, high performance, modern style of performance cars. They they had nowhere to turn, really. Yeah, that yeah, it it, it was weird. We had a, a a not dissimilar thing in the UK. I mean, we do touring cars became quite samey after the super touring era. They just I don't know whether what they um, were thinking, but the cars themselves mm-hmm. became basically just, as far as I was concerned, as someone that was watching it, just a shell on a very similar car. Um, uh, I think they even now they have like engines provided for them and stuff. It's very strange. Uh, like whereas way back when it it was all about the individual companies, um, uh, and you could cheer on Peugeot if you had a Peugeot uh, and all that kind of stuff and you could identify your car or the car you could potentially get off the uh, the forecourt and nowadays I, I think that's more difficult although it does seem to be coming back around I think they do understand a little bit that you need to be able to identify a car I find that's why I find NASCAR so strange it, it's like yeah it's like nothing in that is anything to do with the car you can buy off the forecourt, but people will still support the Chevy teams because they have a Chevy. It's very strange. It's it's interesting. So I've, I mean, I've got a love affair of those big old 
50s and 60s cars, so I ended up in some vintage NASCAR groups on Facebook. And it's really interesting seeing Americans talk about NASCAR today because what I didn't realize, like in Australia, people would follow, people have stopped following um, teams so much. They don't follow Red Bull Holden necessarily. They actually follow the driver because all the Holdens are the same. All the Falcons are the same. All the Mustangs are the same. And you actually end up in this situation where it's a silhouette series, just like NASCAR, um, and just like how you were describing. So the only differentiation is the personality of the driver, and that leaves the people cold. the The, the cars can then be a, the cars might not even be cars; they might be washing machines. That could be anything, because it's completely unrelatable to their own lives. Um, and I think that um. I think that um, having that production base, like like being able to relate to the thing that you're watching compete, that has been lost in the pursuit of competition. And, and yeah, I understand yeah, it's also really safety. Good, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I, I think that the com- the competition is tighter, but the identifiability of it is less. As you say, you follow a driver rather than. A particular type of car. That's, yeah, that's an interesting, interesting thought. I hadn't, uh, hadn't thought about that. Um, it's like, um, being... it's like if you watch the Olympics, if if everyone was, if everyone in the hundred meter freestyle was just dressed head to toe in this black, um, anonymous uh, swimsuit, and it didn't matter if they were like you couldn't see if they were black, white male or female they were just swimming for a time that's how i see silhouette racing it the person inside you can't see it's like that's just a swimmer this is a car you know yeah a car wins the bathurst 1000 doesn't have the same ring as the holden tirana because you you could look outside in the 70s and see a holden tirana or a ford escort wins the wins the, uh, you know, the RAC rally, that was, you could go to school on the Monday and being like, well, your your bloody Vauxhall Cavalier didn't win, did it? No, nah, the Escort won. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, I, I think even in, like the Super Touring era is quite interesting in that regard because those cars don't actually, when you go and sit in them and look at them, don't bear much resemblance to the actual car they're supposed to be. Um but there was still just enough there to to hang on to that you could look at a Honda Accord Super Tourer and think, oh, I could buy a Honda Accord, and it would be a interesting and fast car, like in your head, and and, and like the Primeras and stuff like that. Whereas the generation that came after that, it it felt massively disconnected. Um, yeah, that, that, it's, it's interesting that that happened in Australia as well as um, in in the UK. I, I think that. Uh, it, it's clearly a movement within the sport, but as you say, for safety or for, for tighter racing mm. or whatever. I suppose you, you, you get rid of the situation where the Skyline GTRs dominated for a couple of years or the RS500s just dominated and no one could get a look in. So it makes so it I'll, I'll say, better. I'll, I'll say something controversial here, which is that Skyline fanboys tick me off no end because the Skyline GTR wasn't banned because it beat everything 
That's true. So this is this is one of the like great myths in Australian motorsport. They're like, oh, the, the GTR couldn't be beaten, so they banned it. No, actually, if you cast your mind back to the 1990 Bathurst 1000, the GTRs didn't win. Um, a little plucky Holden 5-litre VL Commodore driven by Alan Grice and Wynn Percy took the win when it shouldn't have even finished the race. It shouldn't have even been on the grid. It was that slow. Um, but... Like, it's funny that, that we have myths, the, 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 the myths that build in, in the automotive scene, particularly in racing, you know. I, the, the, um, one of the first posts, I, when I started doing the whole Instagram daily post about motorsport or, or tuna cars or whatever, the first post I did was Smoky Unix 7 8 scale Chevelle. Now... Anyone out there who has a small amount of spare time, I cannot encourage you enough to go and buy his autobiography because the stuff that is written on the internet about Smokey Eunuch is not even a patch on what actually happened to him. This guy was, he just lived, he lived a life that could never be repeated. He 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 was in World War II, he illegally enlisted early and flew b-17s and flew like over the himalayas he flew trade routes over the himalayas he was one of the first guys in america to own a helicopter he was in he was a foundation of early nascar he worked with general motors and ford and chrysler i believe all throughout the years to develop factory hots like he was the guy the corvette is a v8 because of a smoky uni he was the guy who put the v8 in the corvette um all this sort of stuff. And one of the greatest myths about Smokey Eunuch was that he built a 7th, 7 eight scale Chevelle. And in his own book, he says, no, it was never 7 eight scale. Uh, and, and he actually stepped out exactly what he did to the car to make it. And it just, it just seems that like when, when people looked at that car, they thought it was 7 eight scale. And then the legend carried on into the ether that's amazing and it's funny the um I, I was trying to work out a little while ago so i i follow a guy on um facebook called um staff tech um and uh he's very much into engineering but he often sort of pops the bubble of myths and, and stuff particularly around engineering um and i was trying to work out a little while ago whether or not the internet's made that sort of myth making better or worse in that nowadays the actual information is more readily available than it was when your mate down the pub was telling you about it but then the disinformation spreads a lot quicker so um you can get um th that i'd heard exactly that uh, uh smoky unique story uh, of the seven eighths chevelle um and i believed it up until now and um it, it, it's interesting now anybody listening to this will take that away and next time someone tells that story they can go ah, ah, ah that's not what happened so um it, it's is this is this an age of um correcting misinformation about uh, motorsports cars um and do you feel you're doing part of that actually with your um fantastic um uh, instagram entries my my purpose when COVID all sort of started happening i i love all the stories i love all the the little asides that, that pop up in not only motorsport, but tuna car culture. And so 
when COVID first happened, uh, Street Machine magazine, uh, owned by Bauer Media, and one of the first things Bauer Media did was they basically just put a hold on all freelancers uh, during COVID. So for the first time in nearly 20 years, my day job, which has traditionally been writing about cars, I didn't have any feature cars to write about. So I needed an outlet and I just started, I literally was writing them on my phone, 2,200 characters a time. I have a Dropbox account that I have been saving car photos into for years. Every time I find something cool, instead of saving it to my phone, I save it to my Dropbox. And so I just, I was able to go through and I was able to sort of bring up a few more photos and put together, say, 10 photos in a gallery and a bit of a yarn, a good yarn to spin that was interesting for people. And sometimes it's about popping myths. Sometimes it's about just telling people about this random oddity that's that occurred that more people should know about um today's post was about the toyota turbo the salika turbo cheating in the world rally championship and i've actually had more messages about the i referenced that that toyota team europe built a they were going to build four-wheel drive ae92 series corolla world rally cars um and I had some photos, there's, there's prototypes, and I had some photos that I put up, and people people are just blown, they're blown away that these things existed. And I have to say, yeah. the only reason I know that is because I stumbled across, I stumbled across an internet page that I saved years ago, I would say probably 10 years ago. And I thought, you know what, that would be, I wrote, I wrote down the information and I saved some photos and I, I put it in a file in my Dropbox and just, I thought that is going to be interesting information someday. And it's it's like um, I've got a friend who's an old school, nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies car journal, and they have a library at home. Like I'm talking, like it is a fifteen by ten meter room that is just filled with books and car magazines and brochures and scraps of paper with information written on it. And I have the same thing, but it's just digital. And I, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I literally, I sit down, and it's there's this thing inside me that, for twenty years, I've done it. So I need to write about cars and pick something kind of interesting, you know. Whether it's yeah. land speed, I. Lo- sorry, sorry, the slight, slight delay. Um, it, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, the the range of stuff you pick as well. Um, uh, I, I find it uh, super fascinating that you go from race cars, sort of as you say, um, tuna cars. You do the uh, land speed stuff. It, it's it's all super cool. It's it's a it's a peek into the terrifying place that is my mind. Um, my wife says that my brain is like most people's brains are like one of those like five hundred record jukeboxes, and you pick up one record at a time, and you play one record at a time. My wife says my brain is like one of those, except the arms pick up nine records at one time and play 14. And <laughs> that's just, that's been, you know, my brain for, you know, since since I can remember. Um, I was raised with 
my dad, as I've as I've said before, my dad was in a sort of classic Fiat's, and he was into when I was aware of the world, he was into Peugeots. Um, my uncle was into classic English cars. I had cousins who were into muscle cars. Um, on the other side of the family, I had another cousin who was into rotaries, and I grew up with this very diverse range of cars. There was no wrong answer. If you're in a cars, it's all good. So um, we used to, there was a, an English documentary that I, I wish I could find to this day called The Power and the Glory, which was just all about motorsport. And it was it was every week was a different kind of field of motorsport. The first one was land speed racing, which I thought was just completely heroic because there's no prize. All you win is just a the notoriety that you are the fastest person in the world. You don't you know, it's not like it's not like you know you you guaranteed fame and fortune and all this sort of stuff. But um yeah, they talked about touring car like tin top cars. So like there was. Um, touring cars and NASCARs and stuff like that. And then there was um, formula racing and sports cars. And like, it was all just fascinating to me. Um, and I hope that, I hope that if someone, if someone random person stumbles across my posts on Instagram, it causes them to go off and look up some of this stuff and find stuff that just fascinates them and they can deep dive and that they can really kind of nerd out on. Yeah, I think um, you, you, you set things up in, in a nice way for you give enough information that you can go and find some more stuff about it or you can take them as that's an interesting story. But um, if you want to go and uh, find more, you've got the names and you've got the uh, the details to, to find more stuff. Um, I've actually got a, a question here from a previous interviewer because we have changed questions between our, uh, our little podcasts. Um, so our friend Rob Richardson... Um, uh, Dovetails nicely in here. Um, with a career spanning so many eras of modified cars, what are your favourites and why? Well, um, one of my favourites, I've got a few different ones, obviously. So, uh, Roof CTR Yellowbird, Fascination at the Nürburgring was on high repeat. I remember watching that on the internet and it was, the internet in Australia is famously third world. Kazakhstan literally has better internet than Australia. And I remember watching this buffering. It took 25 minutes to watch a seven-minute lap of the Nürburgring. But <laughs> I was happy to do it um, because watching Stefan Rosa just like, no, you, you don't drive an old 911 like that. How do you do that? The guy's a magician. Um, so CTR, Yellowbird. I had a. I used to review DVDs for one of the magazines I worked for, and Best Motoring, Japan's Best Motoring series, was always a favourite. And I remember watching the the Minds Tuned for Response R34 GTR school everything. It schooled cars with two and three times the power of it. And then a guy in Australia actually contacted Minds, and he had the the funds to build. He got mines to build him a tuned for response GTR. It was like bolt for bolt, nut for nut, the same. Amazing. And uh, I, dro I drove that car and it was every bit as good as I'd hoped. It was better than the Z tune that I drove. Um, I'm, I'm fortunate. 
I'm fortunate enough to have driven some some very very uh, interesting cars, some very valuable cars, and I have to say the mind's tuned for a response car is the closest you've ever come to having a Porsche GT3 RS packaged in a Nissan frame. That's, that's a that's high praise indeed. Those uh, those are a good pair of cars. That, that's um, I, I'm going to say I was unaware of that car, so I now need to go and look that up. This is the uh, Please, this is the wonder of Marv. Look it up. Um, mine's tuned for a sponsor R34 GTR. If you search with best motoring, you'll see they do like a GTR shootout. Um, a friend of mine has a replica Skyline GTR a Hakusuka, which is mm-hmm. a like early 70s, um, sort of the first generation of the Nissan Skyline GTR. His one is a, the, the, the real GTRs, as they inverted commas, they had a, an engine called an S20, which was a two-liter twin overhead cam aluminium straight six. Uh, my mate Bab's car, Babalui, is a very famous guy in the Japanese tuning scene in Australia. Uh, his car has a stove hot L series engine, as was found in the 240Zs, 260Zs, sort of in, in those cars. Um, I like that car visually is just utterly intoxicating. I don't know what it is like. There's there's something Nissan got so right with that car, just its proportions and the way it sits and. Um, and then I always remember, um, again, best motoring. They did an episode at Fuji Speedway just before Fuji was redeveloped, and they had. Uh, if you want to hear a good exhaust nose, a good exhaust note, look up Gan San. That's G A N hyphen S A N Gan San, best motoring Fuji Speedway, because he drives the the. Uh, Hakasuka factory race car that he used to drive in the early 70s around the track and I don't know if there's a better straight six uh, exhaust note in existence yeah I've got a, a friend in the UK that has um, a KPG C10 GTR um, uh, an actual genuine one with an S20 and for a while it was the only one outside of uh, Japan and it sounds great but he he's always uh, says that it's never as fast as people think it it should be. But um, it, it sounds good that's, getting there. But that's that's the thing. Like I remember one of the cars that I grew up idolizing was a C two Corvette, and I finally drove one. And the unfortunate truth of the matter is they're horrible. I drove um, in Australia. We have Twiggy's Lamborghini Wira. I drove that car, and it was horrible. Um, there's. They, there's a saying that never meet your heroes, and I agree. If your heroes are automotive, don't meet them. Look at them, admire them from a distance. But the the reality is, E30 M3s, um, which are like a, a hero car for me, because we never got them in Australia. We never got the the E30 M3, the 190 Cosworth. We never got the the Sierras, all that sort of stuff. Um, so they were kind of like these fabled beasts. But um, I drove a 2.3 base model E30 M3, and I was like, oh, wow, this is... By the time I'd driven it, it was already, you know, just about 20-odd years old. And uh, average family cars had more power and, and responded quicker because it's, you know, it's not, just that it, it's not just that it's an old engine, but it's old management, which was also, 
like a cornerstone of how usable your car actually is. Yeah, yeah, it's like the whole thing that your average um, hot hatch can probably outpace a Ferrari uh, F40 nowadays. But once upon a time, mm. that was an insane car to have on the road. Well, yeah, we we also you know we change as a as we change as a race. Um, it used to be like if you think back to the end of World War Two or to the to the even the mid sixties, um, we hadn't set foot on the moon. We hadn't think of all the diseases we hadn't cured at that time, and and air conditioning was a fairly radical thing. Nowadays, you walk in it, if you walk into a building in Australia that doesn't have air conditioning, you know about it because I mean it's obviously because it's four hundred degrees down here, um, but it's um, just these little things, these little conveniences. You want to go make a phone call. In the 60s, you would have had to have a pocket full of change and you would have had to go find a public phone booth or send a telegram to talk to your friend overseas or whatever. Like, you can't easily look up what time it is in London or New York or whatever. We just take things for granted today. And I think I think one of the... As a journalist, I always used to read... People love going out there and saying, oh, we're going to take the original you know, Escort RS and we'll test it against the latest Focus RS. Well, that's completely useless. Test the original Focus RS or test the original Escort RS against an average car at the time. You know, then you actually see why those cars are so special. Yeah, put all four cars, put, put all four of those cars in a test to show an average car today, a hot car today, an average car back then and a hot car back then because... People forget, like, there's a lot of cars out there that used to do, like, you needed a sundial to time their quarter mile times if you wanted to test acceleration, which is how most people view a fast car today. Yeah, it's sort of the the advancement in uh, cars and tyres as well is a big thing. Um, I never really registered until relatively recently. Just someone talking about Formula One cars and how much faster they could have been if they'd just had better tyres in the 80s, um, in that turbo era, um, mm. because rubber has rubber technology has changed. So actually, it is a bit safer to have a faster car as an average car now because brakes are better and tyres are better and all of that stuff. Whereas back in the uh, 80s and early 90s, you know, you could theoretically get that performance, but it would. Um, come at the expense of something that was safe to drive uh it, it's it, it's an interesting time i still prefer older cars because I, I still think they've got a little bit more to them but um there's no denying that if you want to go fast my diesel volvo will probably outpace most of the older um sports cars 100 percent. and i it's interesting a few years ago there's um so in australia there was a there was a racing a one make racing series for they were say 1500 kilo average 1970s sedans um hq holdens they're like a general motors a body underneath so you know um like traditional a arm front end triangulated live axle four link in the rear they all had 3.3 liter straight six engines that made nine horsepower in a good day and everyone everything was kept as as any good one make series should be, everything was kept to spec, and those things were doing lap times around Bathurst faster than the most fire breathing factory muscle cars 
of the same day. These were cars, like these HQ Holdens were sold in showrooms at the same time as these fire-breathing 5.8-litre Falcon GTs and stuff like that. And the HQs are going around the mountain like 15, 20 seconds a lap faster. Like 15 to 20 seconds a lap is night and day. And it was all down to shocks and tyres. Shocks and tyres, that was all it was. I, I mean, my Pontiac, I went into that. I bought that car in 2014 and I decided that I'd, I'd, fi- I'd try to fix up bits and pieces as I went. And originally I was going to be like a really typical LA Boulevard cruiser. So like 15-inch Astro Supreme chrome wheels. It's airbagged. So it would be like low and slow, traditional Pontiac engine because that's cool. And just, you know, cruise it around at 30 miles an hour everywhere. Um the more I drive today, Australian roads are completely overcrowded because Australian politicians are allergic to um, spending money on infrastructure. And we have some of the worst drivers in the developed world down here. The It's led me to basically say, right, well, my car was ordered from the factory with manual drum brakes. This is a two-ton car, full-size American thing manual drum brakes that was okay in 1964 when you had one car per 19 miles of country to stop it now we don't have that luxury and so um yeah i've I've had to go disc brakes and we're gonna i've decided on efi and and all this other sort of stuff because like it's not just they're not just they're not just faster they're nicer to drive and they're nicer to live with roller cams have revolutionized v8 engines um we make more power more efficiently it's great it's just and you can keep something that looks really original without sacrificing the livability of it too yeah i think that that's that's the thing i mean that that's kind of to a certain degree the whole retro ride thing to bring it fully back around to 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 what we're about it's kind of just much more livable modified older car sure we like the slam stuff and we like the rods and all that kind of stuff but at its heart the majority of the people um around our little scene are uh just trying to have usable older cars really and and we 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 have that ability now we we can do disparate conversions and you know install efi and all that stuff that once upon a time was scary formula one technology it's now a thing that someone can chuck in their car in a garage which is um brilliant power of the internet i I love what you guys do um because i love seeing all the different stuff i love seeing they say that you know there's a thousand ways to skin a cat and i love seeing 999 of them on your page because it's just it always keeps your brain ticking It, it just people and and you know like it doesn't matter if it's a like an alpha 75 or a 38 plymouth or like whatever it is, like a Mini or an Alpha Sud. Um, there's interesting, different ways to do stuff, and people people put their own stamp on cars. And it's just it's great. You can you can deep dive this stuff. I love going in and seeing how like oh how's he mounted that engine? Oh how's you know he's got aircon on that 4AGE and that Sprinter. Oh that's cool. Like I haven't seen one like done like that in the past. Um, and gives you yeah. distraction too. 
yeah, that's the thing. It does give you distraction. I, I, I think it keeps the uh, keeps your brain ticking as well, like with your own stuff. Um, you know, I mean, we can't take credit for any of this stuff. We're not we're not building any of it. We're uh, just showing it off. And and I think that that's kind of it, it's really nice, as you say, to see the possibilities and see the direction people are going. I always think modifying a car is an expression of self in some manner. You know, it's not like purely art or anything but it, it is kind of like this is what i value in my life like like the three-car garage that we were talking about really early on it, it sort of mm. like the these are the things i currently value and these are the things that i want to i want in my life and i think that that's kind of true when you modify a car like when i was younger i probably wanted something that was just fast whereas now i want something that's going to be slightly more comfortable because i'm middle-aged <laughs> yeah and uh, that's that's it you know like uh... I I love the idea of outlaw cars. I'm such a con I'm I'm not like super conservative as a person, but I'm I shy away from conflict more than I go and embrace it. So I'd never own a complete outlaw car. We've got cars in Australia that run like six second quarter miles and they're street registered. And and like to give a bit of background to the to the UK audience here, we have inc like like you guys do, we have incredibly restrictive registration laws where some cars have to get emissions tested every year noise tested all that sort of jazz so it can be quite hard to pack sometimes 3000 horsepower into a into a average sort of ford granada sized uh family car but um people do it and this is great this is you know like people find a way um you know and people, I even love seeing how people paint stuff differently. It, it just um, a, a mate of mine over here runs a um, a great Facebook community and Instagram community called Build Threads, and he oh, yeah. like the whole the whole premise Anth had was just find interesting build threads and share it around because it's that thing. Like you'll know you you personally will know ten people who are all into cars that are all slightly different. I know I do, but we all love a build thread. We all love to hear someone doing something different. Um, a guy I know, Trav, um, I'll give him a shout out. He's He's got a Toyota Stout, but he's got a like Hilux front clip and a completely narrowed rear end with drag radials and an insanely powered 2JZ in it. That, that is just an interesting thing to look at even for hot rodders you know it's it's a wild thing um and i think that like we talked about before the internet means we can even if you're not out there building them in your shed if you're just collating them and providing them as a thing to consume for the public like it should be applauded because you learn a lot you see how people solve those problems yeah, I, I think also the the great thing now is you're you're not sort of restricted in your in your kind of box. So like way back when, like you'd be in Australia, you'd be maybe a member of a local Holden club or whatever, and and that's like the people that you socialise with and and the cars that you you may have seen more of, uh, and that would be influencing your decisions and, and choices and what you wanted to do. Whereas now, because the whole world is at your fingertips you're exposed to a lot more stuff and um not you won't necessarily go oh I, I now don't want to be in the holdens but you might go oh this guy over here is doing this this guy in germany has done this to his 
whatever. Hundred uh, percent. And that kind of that that pushes your buttons. You're like, I'm going to do that to my Holden, and that's going to be great. Uh, one of the one of the guys I know from down in Victoria, Heath. He's got a Holden Tirana with Panasport three-piece Japanese wheels on it, like a wheel that would otherwise be seen on a oh, Nissan Laurel or, or, you know, like one of those kind of 70s, 80s era Nissan Datsuns. He's got them on an iconic Australian muscle car that is a Pro Tourer. This awesome. occurs, and it's like this, this occurs because, you know, you've got people out there like, you can have it's it's like cooking. My wife my wife loves cooking and she's like, Oh, she'll take a bit of, you know, Italian influence into the the traditional uh New Zealand dish that she's making for the night or whatever it may be. We can take these influences. There's no reason we can't do it. My the interior of my Pontiac is gonna be very sixties. It's gonna be like it's probably the least modified part, which is the grom uh I've retrimmed I've had the interior retrimmed and it's gonna be like Grand Prix style trim on all the seats. But then we're talking about a car where we've shaved the outside and like shaved the trim outside and whatnot and there's like sixties custom style and then the drivetrain is actually being quite modern. There's no reason why you can't have a car that's powered like a street machine, styled like a hot rod with a late model tuner approach to the interior. There really isn't. No, they're, build, they're on the build, rules. Build your own car. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that is, uh, I think, probably the best advice anyone can give anyone is build your own car. Take your influences, but then build your own car. Um, that, is, that is absolutely superb. Well, we are um, fast approaching uh, time, I think. Um, this has been absolutely thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, uh, I, I'm... Uh, it's great to hear the thoughts on other scenes, but also hear the similarities with um, what we're experiencing uh, in in Europe and UK as well. So uh, uh, thank you very much for your time. I have to say thank you very much for having me on. It's been, um, it's been fantastic. I always love talking to um, talking to different car people from around the world. Um, It's just, it's refreshing to sort of have uh, <laughs> have our own scenes, sort of ideas reinforced and whatnot, but it's um, it's it's great. I, I I love your Instagram and I love seeing what other people do with their cars. Um, I I think that there's a lot of people who harp on about like, car guys. We're always building cars in our head, you know. I think a lot of people out there listening to this will probably see like you you walk past a car in in the main street of a town and you're like oh yeah I'd, I, if that was mine I'd I'd have these wheels and I'd do this and I'd do that and whatnot. Well, Instagram allows us to live vicariously. We get to live out these fresh ideas and whatnot. So um, yeah, I, I think it's just I think it's fantastic. Like we should we should we should broaden our own or we should always broaden our own horizons. Yes, definitely. I think uh, I, I, I endorse this message. Um, that's absolutely, absolutely superb. Um, well, thank you, everyone, for uh, listening. We will be back again uh, next week. Um, I would like to say I know who it's going to be, but I don't. So that's what's happening. <laughs>